This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. My lecture this morning has quite a few quotes in it. And what I'll probably do is mail those out to you after the lecture, just because the quotes were powerful to me. and it's, So I'll, I'll just make sure I do that. I'll mail them to your small group leaders. So let me begin. The first quote I had this morning is by Gerald May from his book, Addiction and Grace. And it says, and I just want you to listen to this quote and think about it. It says, in our society, we have come to believe that discomfort always means something is wrong. We are conditioned to believe that feelings of distress, pain, deprivation, yearning, and longing mean something is wrong with the way we are living our lives. Do you find that true, that often if you think something, if you're experiencing pain, that something's going wrong, that you're living your life wrong? Conversely, we are convinced that a rightly lived life must give us serenity, completion, and fulfillment. Comfort means right, and distress means wrong. Do you guys believe that, or have you experienced that? You don't believe it, but you've probably experienced it, right? The influence of such such convictions is stifling to the human spirit. So does life really, rightly lived, really lead to comfort, serenity, completion, and fulfillment? And does distress really mean something is wrong? This is, Paul is addressing the Corinthians, and they're looking at him and saying, you're suffering, you're going through so many trials, you've been imprisoned, you're not very eloquent. We're not sure of your apostleship. Something must be wrong. Well, last week's scripture reminded us that we're ordinary vessels. We're not meant to last. And as Alyssa taught us so beautifully, we're ordinary. We're every day. We contain a treasure in jars of clay. Paul continues this line of thinking, and he uses the imagery of an earthly tent. And he reminds us, that the tent is just a temporary dwelling, that our bodies are temporary, temporary dwellings, and that they are not perfect, and they are not meant to last. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and follow along, we can start with reading our primary passage. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 1, or verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Now, Paul was a tent maker, and he knew the analogy, this analogy of a tent well. 
He worked daily with the coarse fabric of goat skins and sewed those together to create large tent fabrics. He knew, although how this fabric was durable and tough and could stand up to the weather, that it was not meant to last forever. He knew it was a temporary dwelling. He knew that the stitches could possibly come out. He knew that the fabric could get worn down by scorching hot sun and by daily wear and tear. And in comparing these tents, this material, to our earthly bodies, he's indicating that we too are temporal and we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to being banged up, torn, worn out. So if you'll allow me to conjecture for a moment, if you can imagine Paul sitting in the main area of one of the ancient cities in one of the main marketplaces, sitting there with his goat skins, sewing them, working with this heavy fabric with a heavy tool and some heavy thread, stitch after stitch, sewing the goat skins together. Perhaps people brought skins in or tents in to be repaired, um, asking him to patch them up. Perhaps people came with asking him if he knew what would be a good support pole or to replace the ones that they'd had because theirs had become less strong, less taunt. The firmness and strength of their poles were beginning to sag. Paul knew that each tent would eventually need to be patched. He knew that even while he was careful in doing his work, that the work of his hands was not perfect. And he realized that our earthly bodies, like the tents, would suffer, would be worn out, would feel the weariness of the day-to-day life, the burden of storms that came in and out. And he compared our bodies to this tent, being like tents and being possibly fabric that was worn out. So with this image in mind, I want to take a moment and ask each of you this morning, where are you feeling worn out? Perhaps it's the long winter that we're experiencing, the consistent rainy days. Maybe it's the political climate. Whenever you turn on the news or read the paper, you see that the political climate is angry, accusatory, and combative. Maybe it's just everyday life, the pace of life. It's the demands of work, your children, your family. Or maybe it's a discouraging environment that you're in right now, and you're growing weary because there's conflict, and you're battling the same battles, what seem to be the same battles, day in and day out. Or maybe you're feeling torn or ripped or snagged. Perhaps you've experienced the sharp cut of cancer or depression, or some other illness, or death, or divorce, or your heart is being ripped by a loved one who's gone astray, or a relationship that's fallen apart, or perhaps there's a relational snag of misunderstandings, accusations, unforgiveness, jealousy, pride, loneliness. If you're in any of those places, ladies, You are not alone. Paul is speaking from firsthand experience. Remember in 2 Corinthians, he says in 4, 8 through 9, he says, we are pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, 
this is not our home. And we grow weary living here. So let me stop a moment and just pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for the reminder that this home is temporary. And I pray that that would anchor into our souls today, Lord, especially in light of the burdens that we carry, in light of the weariness some of us are carrying in this room this morning, in light of the tears of life, the heavy burdens, the snakes, the hard storms that roll in, Lord, and take our breath away and cause us to be weary. Lord, I pray that you would be with each woman who is carrying that worn-out feeling or that torn relationship. I pray that you would comfort her and be with her. And Lord, for those who are in the season of um, freshness, and maybe it's just a warm winter, a spring breeze that is going through, they've just come through a hard season, I thank you for those seasons too, Lord. I thank you for that provision. In your name, amen. Now Kelly Minter points out that Paul's main purpose in this passage is not to describe heaven in detail, but to inform believers that real transformation is going to occur after death. We, will, we have a new body waiting in heaven, heaven that will not wear out and that we will be clothed with. Verse 2 says, we will groan and long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And as I said, the reality is that while we're here on earth in our temporary dwelling, we will experience trials and sufferings. And we, we will long to be home. If you look at, if you want to turn your Bibles now to Genesis 2, I want to take a look at where this all began. So Genesis chapter 2. We're back in the garden. God has just created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. And everything is beautiful. Everything is as it's meant to be. They are communing with their heavenly father. They are free. They are unclothed. So Genesis 2.25 says, The man and woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked and felt no shame. Can you imagine how freeing that would be? Don't we often feel so exposed and ashamed? Here they are in this beautiful part, being with God, naked, without shame. And the serpent enters in in the next few verses. He comes on the scene, and first he tempts Eve, and then he tempts Adam. And he encourages them to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they do so. They go ahead and they partake. They buy into the lie that God is not trustworthy, that God is not good, that he's not to be trusted. And Genesis 3-7 says, as a result, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and then they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, catch that. They realized they were naked before they hadn't, and they felt no shame. Now they realize they're naked. 
trust has been broken. And what's the first thing they do? They start to make coverings for themselves. Genesis 3.10 says God comes walking into the garden and he calls out to the man. He says, where are you? And the, the man answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid so I hid. Again, what do we do when, we're, when we sense we're naked, that we're exposed? We hide. So here now, this perfect relationship has been marked. Distrust has entered in. And now hiding is a part of it. And covering ourselves is a part of it. Then Genesis 3.21. I love this because this shows God's compassionate heart and that he knows our, our um, he knows where we're at and he cares about where we're at. He knows that they're feeling naked, shamed, wanting to hide and afraid. And so he himself clothes them with garments of skin. The Lord, it's verse 321 says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. Now this is the first um, animal that is sacrificed. This indicates that an animal is sacrificed. This is the first payment for sin, and it points forward to the sacrifice that will be made to make us righteous again. The skin with which he clothed Adam and Eve will perpetually remind them that God's provision and care is real. He loves them. He delights in them, even in the fallen state. And in the fullness of time, as we know, as the scriptures point forward to Christ, this first sacrifice pointed forward to Christ, and this is the basis, basis that we will all, that we are all, clothed in righteousness now because of what Christ has done for us. And then in verse 22, you see more of God's mercy. He says, man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and then live forever. He doesn't want us to live in the fallen state forever. So he takes Adam and Eve out of the garden and he puts a protection up there so that they cannot enter in again. You see, ladies, we were meant for the garden. We were created to live in fellowship, unashamed fellowship with God. But the fall occurred, and that created a division. And since then, we've been longing for the garden. We've been longing to be restored. And what Paul is saying is, we will be restored. Verse 4, Paul parallels this Genesis account. He says, for while we are in this tent, in this physical body, we groan and we are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. We do not wish to be shamed, naked, hiding. We wish to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. In other words, we wish to be covered, loved, accepted, fully embraced, freely communing with our God and enjoying his presence. And Paul ends that verse with saying, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And in that little segment, swallowed up by life. He's referring to Isaiah 25, 8, to the prophet. And what I love about this is you can tell that Paul, as he's writing, he has been steeped in God's word. He knows the richness of God's word. He's familiar with the creation account. He's familiar with the Pentateuch. He's, he's familiar with the stories of the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, of all the, the kingdoms that have come. 
And then he's familiar with the prophets. Isaiah 61, 7 and 10 says, I love this is a prophecy by Isaiah, looking forward, and this is before Christ has come. And he says, instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Isn't that a beautiful picture of heaven? This is in Isaiah. This is before Christ has come. And then the response of the people in Isaiah is, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me in the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The response is one of being a well-loved bride knowing that our king delights in us and will clothe us completely. So Paul knows that he's now living partially in the fulfillment of those prophecies. And some people call this the now and the not yet. He knows that we live in a fallen state, longing to be clothed again. He knows that the Holy Spirit, as he points to in verse 5, has been sent to us after Christ's death, resurrection, and return to heaven. He knows that the Holy Spirit has been sent to us as a seal, as a guarantee. Have any of you ever bought, well, a house or a boat or a car, or perhaps right now we're doing a landscaping project at our house, and one of the first things the contractor wanted us to do as he came out was to make a deposit. He wants to ensure that we're in this deal, that we're all in that we're going to follow through with it. So God has made that deposit with each of us. He says, I'm all in with each of you. I've got this plan. I'm all in. And he sent the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So how do we live then in this now and not yet, this time when the storms are hard, when we grow weary? when we feel the pressure at different points, when we feel tears from things like cancer or illness or death. What Paul shows us here is that we acknowledge this is not our home. We let the discomfort surface. We don't ignore it, we don't hide it, and we don't bury it. Paul feels the pain of separation from what he regards as his true home, and he all honestly acknowledges it. I love his words here. He says, we long and we groan. Groan means to moan, to cry out. Long means, means to yearn and to hunger. We hunger for what our real home is. We let that feelings, those feelings surface. Paul also reminds us that we need to keep our eternal perspective. This is not our home, nor was it ever meant to be. Our home is just like it was in the garden. It's meant to be a dwelling with God. Kelly Minter points out that when Paul speaks of being truly home, he doesn't point to a place, but to a person. We will be home with the Lord. That is home. With his presence uninterrupted, face-to-face. 
And in verse 9, Paul says, we also make it our goal while we're here to please him. There will be a time when all of us will come before the throne and give an account for ourselves. And now, this judgment does not have to do with salvation, but we will be held accountable for our actions. So in other words, lady, what we do with this life matters. Now this leads us to our second portion of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15. And if you want to turn there, I'll read that with you. Since then we know that it, what it is to fear the Lord, we try to p- persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. <clears throat> Paul is reminding the Corinthians to make their judgments based on a spiritual vantage point, to look at the heart rather than the outside, to quit looking at things as earthly status, worldly honor, and physical appearance as what matters. Those are all things of the world. Saying, look at the heart. And then in verse 13, he says, if we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we are right in our mind, it's for you. He's affirming to the Corinthians that all he has done for them is for God's sake and for them. It's not for himself. And then, in verse 14, he explains his motivation. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. In verse 15, and he died for all that those who live shall no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, Christ's love gives Paul energy. It urges him forward. It moves him. It propels him forward. It it causes him to live for the gospel fully. The gospel for him is not just uh, a way of getting people saved. It's a reality, a truth that has changed the world. When I don't know how many of you came to the Hot Topic a couple weeks ago, but Barbara shared one of the challenges she said at the end of the Hot Topic discussion was, do you believe the gospel is enough? Do we believe the gospel is enough? Paul did. It compelled him. The love of Christ compelled him. And I have to answer to you honestly, ladies, sometimes my first response there was, I'm not sure. The energy that drives Paul to work for the gospel comes not from a sense of duty, nor from a fear of being punished, but from a response to the love which has reached out, reached down, and reached each and every one of us. The love of Christ keeps Paul from living for himself and instead causes him to pour out his life for others. As Barnett says, Paul moves from egocentricity to Christocentricity. Basically, from self-centered to Christ-centered. So ladies, are you compelled by the love of Christ? Do you read that and go, what would that look like? Does the love of Christ, does the gospel give you energy? Does it urge you to love others, serve others, share, 
Does it impel you forward? What might that look like? Some of you may be there, and some of you may not. And some of you may be like me, asking yourself, at this stage, and I think we go through seasons, but why, what is keeping me from knowing his love, from knowing that intimacy, from remembering the garden, from remembering what I was created for? And in contemplating that question, I came across three quotes in my reading that hit on different possibilities that I wanted to share with you. So the first one is by Gerald May. And he writes this in his book called The Awakened Heart, Opening Yourself to the Love You Need. He says, we are so busy, so occupied with many little things that we are blind to the one great thing. Only in the pauses between things, in the brief contemplative spaces of just being, can we catch a glimpse of love itself. Are we clothing ourselves with busyness, with to-do lists, with efficiency? Are we hiding from God through our schedules, through lack of time, through lack of space, through lack of being, of just enjoying his presence? Perhaps we are clothing ourselves with being too easily satisfied. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does that resonate with you? I know it resonates with me. I know so often I'll have a longing, and instead of really putting that before God, I'll check out, I'll turn on my favorite TV show, I'll go on online and start surfing, either on Facebook or the web or something else. Maybe for some of you it's shopping, maybe it's decorating, maybe it's reading romance novels, cooking, eating, dieting, exercising, watching game shows, soap operas, dramas. These things stimulate our mind, and in in themselves are not bad, but when they begin to entertain us and take that space that is meant for God, that longing for God away, they numb us, they bore us, and they do not stimulate our desire. We become far too easily pleased. It's like eating ding-dongs and Twinkies when God has this magnificent gourmet feast for us. But instead, we'll go, nah, I'll just have that Twinkie there. We become far too easily pleased. And as C.S. Lewis says, we make mud pies in a slum when we are offered a holiday at the sea. Do you relate to that? And then thirdly, we deny or deaden our longings. And I alluded to this earlier, too. I think this is another thing that we do. It hurts too much to long and to groan and to acknowledge the pain. So we want to deny or deaden these longings. 
Dan Allender in The Cry for the Soul says, in many circles, the passionate emotions are discouraged as unspiritual. You're considered godly if you can handle difficult trials with a detached and apparently unruffled confidence. Isn't that true? Aren't we attracted to people that seem to have it all together? That can be going through something horrendous and they can smile up front and look like they have it all together. But Allender says this conclusion is wrong. There are times when a lack of emotion is simply the byproduct of hardness and arrogance. The scriptures reveal that absence of feeling is often a refusal to face the sorrow of life and the hunger for heaven. It's not the mark of maturity, but rather the boast of evil. And I think this points back to the people Paul was um, speaking about to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were attracted to this kind of leader. And they wanted Paul to be this kind of leader. They wanted him to have his act together, to look polished. To not share that he was suffering, that he was longing, that he was groaning. They wanted their leader to look good and to be satisfied with the current and to not talk about the hard parts of life. The Psalms are beautiful examples of David crying out his heart and give us a beautiful example of how we can be honest with God with our longings. Jan Myers, author of Allure of Hope, describes it like this. She says, to hope is far more waiting for something in a hot, sticky mess than it is a peacefully orderly affair. Waiting in a hot, sticky mess. When hope is released and lived into, we find that there's far more waiting, there's far more wanting, and it makes it uncomfortable. But that's the reality of living in the now and the not yet. This is not our home. Paul sat in the hot, sticky mess of living. He spent time as he worked sewing those goatskins together, communing with God, and he allowed himself to feel the depths of desire, the loss of not being with, at home with his father. And through this reality, he was able to run after the real prize, to give his life for the sake of the gospel, because he was compelled by Christ's love. Ladies, what is holding you back from being compelled by Christ's love, from living for the gospel, from believing that it's enough? Let me pray. Lord, we long for you. Please heighten our desire. Please help us not to be easily pleased. Please help us not to pursue lesser gods, less wild lovers, the easiest thing in front of us, Lord, in lieu of pursuing you, of being in relationship with you, of spending time with you, of communing with you, Lord. Please cause us to slow our schedules down so that we can spend that precious time with you, so that we have time to breathe, to contemplate, to hear your voice, and to hear you say, well done, my beautiful daughter. And please cause us not to be scared of the emotions that arise with the longings and the groaning. 
not, us, not to be enticed by looking like we have it all together, but to speak honestly and truthfully to you, Lord, and cry out to you. Lord, we long to be compelled by your love. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, that this is not our home, that we are clothed in righteousness because of your son who died on the cross for us. And now, as we sit here in the not yet, we long and we wait for the glorious wedding supper of the Lamb, Father, where we will get to rejoice in a glorious feast with you. In Jesus' name, amen.